0: Morning, everyone. The Bible reading this morning is from Exodus 20, verse 1 to 21, page 75. And God spoke all these words I am the Lord your God, who brought you out of Egypt, out of the land of slavery. to a thousand generations of those who love and keep my commandments. You shall not misuse the name of the Lord your God, for the Lord will not hold anyone guiltless who misuses his name. Remember the Sabbath day by keeping it holy. Six days you shall labor and do all your work, but the seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord your God. On it you shall not do any work, neither you, nor your son or daughter, nor your male or female servant, nor your animals, nor any foreigner residing in your towns. For in six days the Lord made the heavens and the earth, the sea and all that is in them, but he rested on the seventh day. Therefore the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and made it holy honor your father and your mother so that you may live long in the land the Lord your God is giving you you shall not murder you shall not commit adultery you shall not steal you shall not give false testimony against your neighbor you shall not covet your neighbor's house you shall not covet your neighbor's wife or his male or female servant, his ox or donkey, or anything that belongs to your neighbor. When the people saw the thunder and lightning and heard the trumpet and saw the mountain in smoke, they trembled with fear. They stayed at a distance and said to Moses, speak to us yourself and we will listen, but do not have God speak to us or we will die. Moses said to the people, Do not be afraid. God has come to test you, so that the fear of God will be with you, and to keep you from sinning. The people remained at a distance, while Moses approached the thick darkness where God was. Amen.
1: Alright, thanks uh, Mike and good morning everyone. My name is Scott. I'm one of the ministers here at St. Matt's. It is terrific to be in church together this morning and worth getting out from under the doona, I reckon. Now listen, just before we begin, uh, this week is the last Sunday before Bruiser, the big dog, returns to take charge. And uh, um, just while he's been away, Max and I would like to just pass on our appreciation. Firstly to uh, everyone who's contributed to the Winter Appeal. Uh, as Suzanne said, we're, we're there or we're almost there in terms of uh, funds come in, and uh, we just want to say thank you so much for that, really appreciate that. Uh, I really appreciate Anthony Hill, who's just helping us with tech right now. Let's give Anthony a round of applause, which just adds further pressure on him making this right and getting it fixed, doesn't it? Uh, While Anthony's uh, cracking away at things, I'd like to also um, just acknowledge the staff team who've done a terrific job in working harmoniously and industriously in Bruce's absence. It's not a new thing for them to do that, but they've just worked really well together. And finally, um, we'd like to thank um, the congregations of St. Matthews. It's been an absolute delight to um, be with you and to be able to minister to you. Great privilege, and so thank you. And uh, thanks, Anthony, as well. Let me pray, and we'll get underway. Heavenly Father, you're so good to us in so many ways. And one of those ways is in giving us your scriptures, and the greatest way is in giving us yourself, but we want to use the former, your scriptures, in order that we might get to know you better, so that we might become more like the Lord Jesus Christ, in whose name we pray. Amen. I uh, distinctly remember, by the way, having Exodus 20 open in front of you will be a big help. I distinctly remember my first driving offence. Sure, you can remember yours as well. I was in our little four speed 1982 Ford Laser, rambling up this hill with a whole stack of late model four wheel drives that have never been off road shooting ahead of us on the outside. And then I saw this dreaded sign the lights and the sirens in the rearview mirror. And I did that thing where you're like, Me? Is is he after me? It can't be me. I'm in a four-speed 1982 Ford Laser rambling up this hill with a whole stack of late-model four-wheel drives whizzing past us. They've never been off-road. Maybe he's booking them for that. So I just kept driving, and the police car kept following. And about a half-mile further down the road, I eventually pulled over and out stepped the police officer from the highway patrol car wearing his motorcycle pants. And I was thinking, this is not good. And he gives me the condescending once-over, and he gives me the ticket, and he wanders around the car, and he says, you've been scrubbing off the number plate, haven't you? (laughs) What, says I? Yes, you've been scrubbing it off with steel wool so that we can't see it. Which I then thought was a really good idea and wished I'd have done. (laughs) And I protested back and said, not I, sir. And eventually he left us alone with a fine and an overwhelming sense of Underwhelming. Then there was this other time when um, when a fellow tried to blow up an ATM, like an automatic teller machine, in St. Ives, which sounds really bad, but nothing else happens in St. Ives, so it was really exciting. And um, the police put tape around like half a block. And uh, when I was walking to the bus that morning, I just asked the copper if I could walk on the footpath just inside the police tape. And he must have thought that I called his mum ugly or something because he started moving towards me quite aggressively, telling me to go away. And then I must have looked at him the wrong way because he says to me, what's your problem, mate? And I thought, oh, where to begin? <laughs> and then I thought, well, you're 21. Now that's okay. Fresh out of the academy, I think you're taking too many steroids, which accounts for this unnecessary rage against me. And you got a loaded pistol within arm's reach. You asked what's my problem, that's my summary of the situation. Another fairly negative experience. Now let me say, I've had lots of positive experiences with police. When you get robbed and all your gear gets nicked, you love to see them, don't you? But I think that kind of summarises our basic posture towards the law. We responded negatively to it. We have negative associations, even with the word law, Unless, of course, it works in our favour, or we need it, and then we love it. But that basic negative posture towards our civil law carries over to what I think is a basic negative posture towards God's law in the Bible. And that is the exact opposite of the response that we ought to have. And so today, as the Israelites receive the Ten Commandments, the law of God from God, we will see that the law that God gives is good. It's good. It's good for them. But it's also good for us. So that's today. Now we are nearing the end of our study of Exodus. And uh, if you've not been with us, we have charted the Israelites' time under Egyptian slavery. uh, Through the plagues by which God judged Egypt and its gods and its king, and through which he opened the way for the Israelites' wonderful exit out of slavery. You see, the British were the first people to leave, were they? And we stood with them, the Israelites, that is, trembling. The shores of the Red Sea as they passed through two walls of water onto dry land. And then we journeyed with them as they grumbled through that dry land, so desperately needing to learn the difficult lesson that they really could trust the Lord God. For he is the God of personal covenant faithfulness. It's in his name. It's in his nature. And by now it's well and truly in his track record. It's on his resume. Last week we huddled with them at the foot of Mount Sinai as they prepared to meet with God and as God prepared to give them the law, the Ten Commandments. Well, today he gives the law and contrary to our basic posture, we see that the law is good. It's good for the Israelites and it's good for us. Well, the question is, why is that? And the first reason why the law, as summarized in the Ten Commandments, is good is because the law follows salvation. Now that really was the theme of last week, wasn't it? The law follows salvation. Instruction follows delivery. The law follows salvation. And you can see that in the very opening verses of Exodus chapter 20. So read along with me in your Bibles. Verse 1 and 2. And God spoke all these words, I am the Lord your God. Who brought you out of Egypt, out of the land of slavery? We think this chapter is all about instructions, but before we even get to the instruction, there is a reminder of the priority of salvation. This is God who has already brought them up out of slavery. And it's personal to him. You notice he says, the Lord, your God. And it's actually your in the singular as if God is saying to each and every Israelite, you and me, we've got a, you and me, we're in relationship, you and I, we're friends to each and every one of them. And so that law is kind of caged or framed within the context of a personal relationship with God, which is just the same as all the law, all the instruction in the New Testament. But it's good. And it's good because it follows salvation. That is, it teaches people how to live now that they've been saved by God. Now that they've been saved by God and formed into relationship with Him, what are they to do? I mean, they don't use their newfound freedom to continue living a sinful life. They use their freedom to live in a way that pleases God. But they need Him to tell them what that looks like. Otherwise, they've got to try and figure it out for themselves which is not easy to do and this is one of the reasons why our basic negative posture towards the law particularly God's law is so at odds with how the rest of scripture describes God's laws you see if you were to read Psalm 1 or Psalm 19 or Psalm 119 the writers love the law of God and they delight in it because through it God has revealed How to live in a way that pleases him. And you know, Israel's God was distinctive among the nations at the time because they had a God who spoke and who revealed to them uh, stuff about himself and what he required of them. And so the law follows salvation, and that is good. Secondly, for today, the law reflects God's character, uh, and that is also good. The law, God's law, as summarized in the Ten Commandments, teaches us how to live for God, but it really springs from his nature. The law reflects his character. And you can see this very easily if you just track down each of the Ten Commandments. So have a look verse 3 in your Bibles. first commandment, you shall have no other gods besides me, which tells us that God is jealous, rightly jealous for his glory, and unwilling to share that with any other created thing. Whether that's a statue, whether that's a philosophy or an ideology, whether that's a material possession, whether that's another person, whether that's any other piece of creation. Everything else is an imposter, not worthy of our worship. And God is rightly jealous of his glory. You shall have no gods but me. Look at the second commandment, verse 4. Reminds us that we are to worship the right God in the right way. And he just can't be reduced down to an idol apart from being spirit himself he's just too big for that that's why we don't worship kind of pictures of jesus that's why we've got to be careful that we don't worship buildings or even worship worship which is possible we worship god and uh he is too big to be reduced to anything have a look third command verse seven you shall not misuse the name of the lord that reminds us that god is honorable he is isn't he He ought to be treated with respect. Even his name is to be revered because his name is his nature. Or the fourth command, verse 8, keep the Sabbath holy, reflects a fact that we serve a God who both works and rests. And one who delivered the Israelite people from their endless work under Egyptian slavery. And we'll talk more about kind of this idea of Sabbath and rest When we look at the topic of work in term three. Or the fifth command, verse 12, honour your parents. That's about respecting parental authority. We quite like this command, don't we, us parents? And what stands behind it, though, is God's own authority as our Heavenly Father. Sixth command, verse 13, about murder reminds us that God is the giver of life. The seventh command, verse 14, about adultery. It's not because God is anti sex, but it reflects God's own purity. And his own faithfulness. The 8th command, verse 15, about stealing, reminds us that God is the great provider. The ninth, verse 16, about false testimony or lying, comes from the God of truth, who is true in all that he is and all that he says and all that he does and whose word is the benchmark or the standard of truth. And the 10th commandment, in verse 17, flows out of God's wisdom and the fact that he knows what we need, what's good for us, what's in our best interests. And that in his wisdom, he knows that if he gave us everything that our hearts or our minds desired, that would be quite disastrous for us. You'll recall that Jesus said that all of God's law could be summarized by the commandments to love God with all that we have, heart and mind soul strength and to love our neighbor as ourself and ultimately that's true isn't it the god who gave these commands is a god of love so willing to express it to a thousand generations says exodus 20 who wants us to love him and to mediate that love to others and so of course the commands are good because they're reflections of the goodness and the love of god And when you think about it like that, it is impossible to see these things as burdensome. And it is impossible to see them as random. He could not have given us any other commandments than these, when you think about it. They express his will for our lives perfectly, because they flow out of his perfect character. And so the law follows salvation, that's good. And the law or the commandments reflect God's perfect character. Well, that's good too. But the third thing to see today is that the law, as kind of summarised in these Ten Commandments, govern relationships. They're about protecting and nurturing and bolstering relationships. And firstly, that of course is referring to our relationship with God. Uh, When my wife and I lived in London, we lived there for three or four years, We visited um, stacks of castles, because there's stacks of castles in Europe, like they're they're everywhere, all over the place. But the only one that I ever went to that had a live monarch, a living king or queen in residence, was Buckingham Palace itself. And uh, if you've been to London or you come from London, you'll know that anyone can hang around outside Buckingham Palace. If you want, you can stand outside all day, every day. But for a very short period of time, every summer, the Queen of England opens her front door and you can go inside Buckingham Palace. So one day, we woke up and thought we might pop in to see the Queen. Now, of course, the thing is, you can't just kind of knock on the front door if you want to see the Queen. You've got to wear decent clothes to start with, otherwise they'll turf you out and... You've got to walk through metal detectors, otherwise they will certainly not let you in. And that's right, but all in all, when you go to see the Queen, you approach her on her terms, don't you? If you listened carefully last week, you'd have noticed, or if you studied this in small groups during the week, you'd have noticed that the Israelites can't just kind of rock up on the mountain, flick off the top of a couple of beers and have a chin wag with God, but that's what we stupid Australians think it's like with God. Some of you might be old enough to remember this TV commercial which had the tagline when you get to heaven what do you think you'll say? You say day.' It's ridiculous. Let's imagine what happens. The Israelites rock up on the mountain crack open a couple of beers and say day' to God. What happens? They die. That very instant. Because they're to approach God on his terms. But You've got to see that that doesn't mean that God doesn't want to have relationship. Have a look at verse 20, when the people were so afraid of God. What does Moses say in verse 20? Don't be afraid. Huh? Don't be afraid. God has come to test you so that the fear of God will be with you to keep you from sinning. In other words, Moses is saying there is an appropriate fear and an inappropriate fear of God. It is inappropriate. It is inappropriate. To fear relationship with God in the outright sense. That is the mistake of the people back then. If you are here this morning and you fear relationship with God today, that's a mistake, if I can say that politely. The Israelites said, we don't want to meet with God. Man, we're afraid. And Moses says, don't be afraid in that sense. But there is an appropriate fear, isn't there? Which gives him due reverence. And approaches his presence on his terms rather than on our terms. And the first four commandments show us how to approach God on his terms. No other gods. He is exclusive in that sense. Uh, No idols. He's just too big for that. No misusing his name. Yes, even his name is to be honoured. And create time for resting to remember him because he's not just one other thing to slot into our busy schedules they show us that we relate to god on his terms now of course the ten commandments which were given after god has saved his people you remember that from last week it's very important to get that order right and not to mix it up Well, they don't just guide us in our relationship with God. They actually also guide us in our relationship with one another. Is it true that God wanted his people to obey the Ten Commandments that he laid down in Exodus 20? Well, of course it's true, but not just for the sake of obedience. He wanted his people to obey the Ten Commandments because that would result in good relationships between those people and God and between those people one to another. And you can see that if you look at the back six commandments. They summarise how to live well with your neighbour. Honour your parents. Don't murder people. That does not create a situation giving to favourable relationships. Uh, Don't have sex with someone you're not married to. And look, at this point, um, it is worth saying, isn't it, that most of the people in this room, we're in the middle years of our lives, 30s, 40s, 50s, 60s. They're the kind of routine years where kind of life has a humdrumness about it. And uh, when something or maybe someone comes along, it's just different. It can seem really exciting. And there's a great temptation, isn't there, to commit adultery, I think, even emotionally. So if that's you, don't. And if you're doing that today, you need to stop today. And even the contemplation of it, you ought to stop right now. Similarly with stealing, if your business arrangements, your work arrangements involve stealing, you need to stop, you need to stop right now. Same with lying, same with coveting, um, that is being jealous or with what your neighbour has being discontent with what you have. You do see these last six commands show the Israelites how to live in right relationship with their fellow Israelites. That's got to be a good thing. Now of course that might sound burdensome to you. Uh, It might sound ridiculously outdated in our progressive society. I would say, can you imagine what our society would be like if people had an honest go at not lying? Or not being jealous about what their fellow person has? Or about staying faithful sexually? Or about not stealing? I mean, I think that would put the progress back into progressive. Can you imagine what our world would be like if we never had to deal with adultery or murder or with selfish ambition or revenge or untruthfulness could you imagine this morning when you came to church not locking your front door because stealing didn't exist leaving your car unlocked because there was no prospect of getting robbed can you imagine what life would be like if everyone honored god as god and worshiped nothing else if you think that Christianity is a bunch of rules that you have to obey to keep God off your back, well, you've got the order wrong, because obedience follows salvation. But you've also got obedience wrong, because Christianity involves a way of life where relationships are valued above anything else. And I know we get it wrong, but that's that's what we're that's what we're aiming at. It's a way of life where people are concerned to give God the honour that He is due. And other people, the respect they deserve as creatures made in his image. People, of course, might say that Christianity is a new form of slavery, a new form of restriction. I reckon that a train is only ever free when it's running on its tracks. Let me ask you a question. Does this look like a picture to you of great freedom? all of God's instructions to us are like tracks for trains, guiding us in living well in relationship with God and other people. And you can call that a picture of freedom if you want to, but I'd prefer what God has in store for us. Because, friends, his law is good for us. So that's the third thing. Fourthly and lastly for today... The Ten Commandments, which were given to the Israelites then, still apply to Christians today. The law, in other words, still applies to us. And uh, you might be surprised to hear me say that, but um, I want to tell you about my coat. Here's one I prepared earlier. It's cold today, isn't it? So I brought my coat along. And uh, when I first moved to, um, to Europe, I didn't have a coat. I just had this yellow jumper, which was ridiculous. It was like walking down the street like a giant banana. Uh, so I needed a coat, and I bought this one in Florence, in Italy, 360,000 lira. It's about 40 bucks. <laughs> anyway, I like this coat because it's got um, multiple functions or uses. Firstly, it keeps you warm. That's what it's designed to do. And I wore it most days for three and a half years. It does a good job of that. But um, it also has this kind of zippy bit where you can kind of unzip the warm and toasty lining, and you can wear it as a fashion piece if you zhuzh it up a bit. Now, I'm not saying I ever did that. I'm just saying I could do that if I wanted to, all right? It's also got uh, a, thick, a thick wax coating, which means it further functions as a raincoat. And because it's got a thick wax coating, it's a very heavy coat, and you could use it as a weapon. You could slap someone around with it. But you can use it defensively as well as offensively. offensively. And I don't think a blade could even penetrate this jacket. It is like the Swiss army knife of jackets. Very, very good. Multiple functions, multiple uses. Now, the Old Testament is just like that jacket, you see. Sometimes you hear people say the Old Testament law or the Old Testament in general doesn't apply anymore. Wrong. That's wrong. Of course it applies to us today. The question is how? How does it apply? And the answer is in multiple ways because it has multiple functions ...and multiple uses, just like my coat. In other words, it's complex. And what we need to do as a group exercise... Okay, ...we need to do some theological, some Bible kind of chin-ups right now. So I hope you're with me. It's complex, but let's embark together. Let's think about the ceremonial laws in the Old Testament. They're all the laws about special celebrations, about sacrifices and ceremonies and they point forward to the arrival of a great once-for-all sacrifice to take away the sins of the people forever and as we saw when we looked at the topic of passover that was fulfilled in the lord jesus christ our passover lamb who has been sacrificed who takes away the sins of the world so as mark prayed at the beginning we no longer offer animal sacrifices But the ceremonial law applies in the sense that it helps us to understand Jesus' perfect sacrifice on the cross for our sins in our place. It applies in that way. Now, the Old Testament civil laws, they're the kind of laws that govern the operation of Israelite society while it was surrounded by a whole bunch of other nations in the ancient world. And those laws, and there's some of them in Exodus. Show us the need for God's people to be holy, distinctive, disciplined, generous, and just. These laws do not apply to Australia or America or another country as a country anymore, although a country that's governed by those principles is a good country to live in. And as we vote this week, people, we want to vote for leaders who embody those principles of discipline, generosity and justice rather than just voting for the party that's going to make us the most well-off financially but back to the civil laws they show us what a community built on god's wisdom should look like so if they're going to apply anywhere these days it's not to australia as a country or america as a country but to the church as the community of god's people okay so that is the ceremonial law that's thinking about ceremonies sacrifices uh, that's the civil law that that's kind of shows what uh, God's community should look like. But of course the law also has a personal and moral dimension. And this is the clearest in the Ten Commandments. Does that moral law apply to Christians? What do you reckon? I've just argued that the Ten Commandments are an expression or reflect God's perfect nature in various ways... And that hasn't changed. He's still perfect, isn't he? And they govern relationships with one another and relationships with God. As far as I can tell, that's still important. So if his perfect nature hasn't changed and his desire to have well-functioning relationships haven't changed, won't these commandments still apply to us? I think the answer is yes. Maybe slightly differently, but still yes. Or let's think about it another way. Tell me, will there ever be a time where it'll be okay to blaspheme God? Will there ever be a time to have, where it's legitimate to have another God alongside him? Will there be a time where it's okay to murder or steal or to falsely accuse someone? I don't think so. I reckon that's part of the reason they are written on stone. I actually think that's part of the reason why they appear in the New Testament in various ways. Uh, Sometimes they're nuanced. uh, Well, really only in the case of the Sabbath, which we're going to look at uh, next term. But usually they're amplified, aren't they? They're extended. Remember Jesus saying, You have heard, do not commit murder, but I tell you the truth. Anyone who hates his brother in his heart... You have heard it written, do not commit adultery. I tell you, anyone who looks at someone lustfully in his heart, most of the time they're amplified and extended. And so this is another use of the law. It it points to the coming of Christ, it certainly does. Uh, It it shows us what a God-governed community looks like, definitely. But it continues to instruct saved people on how to live righteously, on how to live well for God. And the last use we're going to talk about today is that it shows us our need of salvation. There we go. shows us our need for salvation. And here's the thing. And you and I know this full well. We cannot live up to the requirements of the Ten Commandments. No matter how hard we try, we fail. In fact, the harder we try, the more we realize we cannot try hard enough to keep them. And the more we realize we need salvation to come from outside of ourselves. And so these Ten Commandments, really they function like a mirror which we hold up to our face and we realise that our face is dirty. You don't wash your face with a mirror though, do you? Making us clean, saving us, however you want to describe it, is one function that the law cannot do. It never could. And so it does not apply in that way. You can only get clean by something else. Here in the Old Testament, in the book of Exodus, we've seen that salvation comes before obedience. We've seen that grace comes before law. We've seen deliverance comes before command. And that continues in the Christian life. The Ten Commandments can show us how to live well. They can show us how far short we fall from living well. But they cannot clean us up when we don't live well by them. They're the mirror. They're not the washer. They show us that we need salvation, but they cannot provide that salvation. And folks, people have always needed salvation to come from outside of themselves. These Ten Commandments anticipate the coming of one who would perfectly fulfill all the requirements of the law and then take the penalty that is due under that law for all those lawbreakers. All of us all who turn and trust in Jesus, only in Jesus' perfect obedience and only in his sacrificial death can we be right with God. And the more we look into the mirror of God's law, the more clearly we see that we are sinners who need a saviour who is none other than Jesus himself. Let me sum things up as we finish up. Because the law follows salvation, because obedience follows rescue, whether that's in the Ten Commandments or any instruction in the New Testament, we look to God to provide salvation rather than trusting in ourselves and our own performance. Because the law reflects God's perfect character, we look at these commandments and we delight in the giver of them and in his perfection rather than pulling back in fear like the Israelites did or rather than in begrudging obligation because the Ten Commandments show us how to live well how to live righteously in right relationship with God and with others we follow them taking into account how the New Testament nuances them or tends to amplify and extend them and because they reveal our great need of salvation they they push us back to the beginning where we first turned and trusted in Jesus, our great Saviour. We are naturally negative about the law, but in all these ways we see that God's law is good. It was good for Israel and it remains good for us. Let me pray to him now. Why don't you join me? Heavenly Father, God, we do want to thank you for your scriptures and we thank you for the Ten Commandments and they show us many things. Firstly, that they are not a way to salvation, but they follow salvation. Secondly, they show us your great and wonderful and perfect nature. Thirdly, they show us how to live well for you as people who have been saved already by you. And then lastly, they point us back to Jesus, where we started when we first turned and trusted in him. So, of course, we delight in you and we ask for your help to live by them, but especially we continue to ask that you would help us to trust in Jesus, in whose name we're saved and in whose name we pray. Amen. Amen. Folks, we're going to finish our time by uh, singing together. This is our operatory song. The collection bags will come around. As they do, it's a good chance for you to pop in either a Connect card or a Winter Appeal brochure or anything else you like. Maybe not empty coffee cups, but... See how you go. Let's stand and sing.